There's a comedian whose name is Carl Hurley, and he tells a story about how throwing away a trash can is the hardest thing in the world to do. You see, Carl had one of those old beat-up metal trash cans that was no good anymore, and so he thought, well, what I'll do is I'll go down to the curb and I'll lay this old can out next to my other cans, and surely the garbage man will understand that I don't need it anymore, and he'll take it away and, and throw it uh, away for me. So he does just that. He takes that old beat-up metal can down to the curb, and he puts it out there right next to the other good cans, and he goes off to work. But he comes home from work that day, and there sits that old metal can right next to the other cans, just as they were before. And Carl thinks to himself, well, surely the garbage man just didn't get it. He didn't understand what I was trying to do. And so this time, when the garbage man came, he said, I'll, I'll do this. I'll take that old beat-up metal can, and I'll flip it upside down. And so that the garbage man can see that rust has eaten the bottom of the can out, and it's no good for holding trash anymore. So he goes off to work, and he thinks, surely the garbage man will get it this time. But he comes home from work, and he sees that old can is right there next to all the good cans again. And, and actually, the, the garbage man had flipped the can over and put it down pristinely right next to the good garbage cans. And he gets frustrated at this point, and he says, how are they not understanding what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to throw this can away. So he takes out his frustrations on that old metal can. He gets a sledgehammer, and he beats that old can for all it's worth, beats it out of shape and warps it something terrible. So he says, surely the garbage man is going to see this old can, and he's going to know that I want him to take it away from me because it's no good for holding trash anymore. So he puts it down all warped and out of shape, beat up and dented, goes off to work. And he comes back thinking, you know, as he's driving home, they'll surely have gotten it this time. The garbage man will take this can away. But he gets there, he drives up there, and he sees that old can is sitting right there next to all the other good cans. And he's really frustrated at this point because not only had the garbage men not taken it away, but they had actually taken the time to beat out some of the dents in that old can. And so he doesn't understand, and he, and he says, well, how in the world am I supposed to get rid of this old can? So he thinks about it, and he thinks about it, and he thinks about it, and then he goes to the hardware store. And he thinks, this is the only thing I know to do. He buys the heaviest link of metal chain he can find, and the best padlock money will buy. And he takes that old can, and he chains it to a tree in his front yard. And sure enough, somebody came by that night and stole it. <laughs> Anxiety can be a lot like that old metal trash can. We know we need to get rid of it, but it's not always that easy to do. In doing research for this sermon, I, I looked up what anxiety in our culture is like today, and I read an article that I think it really kind of puts uh, a finger on all that we go through in this anxious age. This article says that we're actually living in what they have called now the age of anxiety. And they give us a little bit of information as to why they say that is. They say that anxiety is now the most common diagnosis given by mental health professionals in America today. That more medications are prescribed for anxiety today than at any other time in human history. And now children as old as five years old are now diagnosed with anxiety disorders. They say we live in anxious times, in an anxious culture, in an anxious world. And if you've ever experienced anxiety, you understand what it is. It's defined as a feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease, typically about an imminent event with an uncertain outcome. 
Now that's a bit of a clinical definition. I've always understood anxiety as fear and worry and the collision that they come into our lives with the mess that it left behind becomes the anxiety for which we live into. And it can be a difficult place to dwell. And anxiety can come on us from many different places. It can come in our lives from a medical diagnosis that we were not expecting. It can come to us in the form of a bill we cannot pay or a a test we did not study for or even something as simple as braving Atlanta traffic. Anxiety can come at us in many different ways. But the results of anxiety are almost always the same. Anxiety comes into our lives and it takes away our peace and steals away our joy. And it certainly keeps us from living the Christian lives that God intended for us to have. And so it pulls us into our reading for today. And our reading for today is one of my favorites because it's written by one of my absolute favorite people in all of Scripture. By the Apostle Paul, who was himself an attorney of sorts, who had a call struck blind along the road to Damascus. That didn't happen to me. But uh, he was called from a former life into a ministry, and he listened and was obedient to the call of Christ. Here in this setting, we see that Paul has hit his stride as the person that God called him to be, the minister to the Gentiles. Now, he was himself, we know, a Pharisees. He was educated by the finest of teachers and tutors and had risen up to become a great leader in his own right of the Pharisees and great persecutor of Christians. But in this setting, he'd already been called away from that life into what he became his true calling. If there's anything that Paul was, we might call him a church planter today. He was a missionary, and on missionary journeys throughout Europe and Greece and all the surrounding areas in the Middle East, he would start churches. Now, in this particular missionary journey, it was his second missionary journey, he went to a place called Philippi, which is just modern-day Greece, and he would gather up, like he always did, people. And he would preach and teach the gospel message, and the people who heard him were converted. And then he would gather those converted people up, and he would form churches. He would get them all gathered up and get them running really well, And then he would leave like the good Methodist that Paul was. He'd go on to the next congregation and do the very much good he could going all the way. Of course, you didn't know that Paul was a Methodist, but he absolutely was. An itinerant pastor going from church to church doing the most good he could in the most places he could, as John Wesley, our founder, would say. So Paul would get these people organized, get them going really well, and leave. And then he became like the mom who was cleaning the house And she would get so frustrated when she'd clean a room. And as soon as she cleaned that room, her children would come in behind her and destroy it. And she'd say, can't you just keep this room clean for five minutes? That was Paul. Because no sooner would he leave a congregation that he had planted and got going good, than someone else would come in behind him. We call them false teachers. And they would teach these half-truths that were somewhat akin to what Paul had said but also not quite. And so all this confusion would come up from this is what Paul said, and but wait, that's not what this person said, and that's not what that person said. And so they would get really confused about certain things, and then they would send word to Paul. Paul, 
You see, when you left us, all these other people came in and they taught us this and they taught us that and now we're really confused. And then you add with it what was going on at the time that Paul wrote these letters and that Paul was starting these churches. They were living in an empire that was not at all open and warm and welcoming to Christianity. Now, we think Christians have it tough today But we aren't being rounded up. We're not being thrown in prison. Our children aren't being taken from us. Our property is not being sold. We're not being fed to lions and we're not being set on fire. We are being persecuted, but nothing like it was in Paul's day. That was the day and age in which Christians were living. And so talk about anxious times. These Christians were very much afraid of stepping out and stepping up for their faith. And so they would worship in these underground churches afraid of telling others that they had come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And the anxiety would keep them bound in fear and worry about what might happen if they were discovered. And so Paul writes this wonderful letter back to them and he says, do not worry. Do not have fear. Have joy, no peace. Give your worries over to God. Oftentimes when I think about this, I often think that when Paul wrote these words, he must have come across as one of those annoyingly optimistic people, you know, who always have that chipper word when you're in your kind of dark time in life and you're, you're not really feeling to, to hear those, those words of optimism and joy and you think, surely, fine, that may work for you, but that's not the case for me. And oftentimes we can say, well, that's just Paul. Paul was able to do that, but, but I'm not. Because Paul had this incredible ability to be optimistic no matter what occurred in his life. He was like that little boy who was found digging in a deep pit of manure. And yet, even in the midst of this deep, dark place, covered in filth, he was joyfully shoveling away that manure as quickly as he could. And then a, a passerby came by and they saw the, the young man down in that hole and the passerby was just transfixed by what the boy was doing and he stopped and he said, Son, how in the world can you be so joyful when you're covered in manure and filth? Well, the little boy paused for a second and quit his digging and he said, Sir, the way I look at it is this. With all this manure, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> Paul was like that. He had this ability to speak joy and to speak positive words in the midst of trying times. But again, you can also just discard that and say, well, that's just Paul. Paul is on the Mount Rushmore of Christians, and if, if anybody can be joyful in terrible times, it's Paul. But that's why context in Scripture is so important, because if you understand where Paul was when he wrote these words, He wasn't sitting on the beach, toes in the sand, and umbrella drink in his hand. Paul was in prison in Rome, most likely, when he wrote this letter to those followers. And prison in Paul's time was not at all like prison is in our day and time. There was no cable TV. There was no yard. There was no weight room. There was no three meals a day. Prison in Paul's time was much more like being in a dungeon chained in a dark place where starvation and disease were something that most prisoners died from before they ever got to their moment of execution. Paul writes these words, imprisoned in such a terrible place by a borrowed candlelight, chained to a wall, and yet he says to be joyful. To know peace 
And the peace that we need and can have is transcending in our lives. And it's often interesting to me that Paul could speak about such peace and joy in the midst of such darkness and terrible hardship. So in my life, I often look for the peace of Paul, for the faith of Paul in the faces of those around me. Scoutmasters, Sunday school teachers, preachers, faithful friends. And you know, I didn't find it in any of those places until I came to Wesley Glen. And it was at Wesley Glen that I found the faith of Paul. Let me tell you what I mean. On an especially nerve-wracking, anxious, worrying day, I remember sitting in my office and just getting up and walking across the street into our cornerstone building, our life skills center where we have our, our day program, where our day program is where our residents come and they're able to, to grow in their own independence. Now, based on what their goals are, they do things that we oftentimes take for granted. They exercise, they paint, they learn to, to tie their shoes or to speak, to do things that we oftentimes just overlook as things we do all the time. But the first face that I met on that particular day was one of our residents whose name is Stuart. Now, Stuart had not met me before, and Stuart walked with arm crutches. There's Stuart right there in the middle. And Stuart came up to me and he said, Dr. T, what's all what they call me there, Dr. T, he said, I am so glad you are here. Thank you so much for all that you are doing. I am so thankful for you. And I remember thinking to myself, how in the world can I ever worry? How in the world can I ever complain? How in the world can I ever get down on myself when someone like Stuart, who has such hardship and has gone through such a difficult time in life, can still maintain such joy? And then you can run into people like Johnny. Johnny is one of ours who has Down syndrome. And Johnny is one of the most loving individuals I've ever met in my entire life. And I mean pure joy. That's Johnny right there on the end with the glasses. Johnny is a hugger. Johnny loves to embrace, and kind of one of those hugs that lasts just long enough to be uncomfortable, you know. And he'll wrap you in one of those big, long hugs, and he will just tell you over and over again that he loves you. And he means it. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. And I often tell my staff, if you ever want a dose of affirmation, if you want to feel God's love, go seek out Johnny. And you will hear of love. And you will feel the love of Almighty God through people like Johnny. Or people like Liddy. Liddy works the front desk in the Cornerstone building, and Liddy actually works for Wesley Glenn. She answers the phone for us. So if you call Wesley Glenn from 8.30 in the morning to 3 o'clock, Liddy is the one who's going to take your call. But Liddy also has intellectual developmental disabilities and is now completely blind. And yet she is the most peaceful, loving, and caring individual you'll ever meet. And so it was funny to me that when I seek out the faith that I thought I would find studying the scholars and seminary in my doctoral program, listening to the great preachers of our age, or reading from the wonderful Christian authors throughout the ages, it was in the faces of the people of Wesley Glen that I found the purity of faith that Christ calls all of us to, and that Paul says that we can have even in the midst of hardship. 
even in the midst of difficulty, that we can maintain joy. Joy like Stuart has. Love like Stuart knows. Or peace like Liddy exudes every single day of her life. And so I say this. Yes, we live in anxious times. Yes, there are uncertain things that we have to deal with as people of faith. Yes, there are things that will come into our world and mess up all the order that we thought that we have completed in life. And yet, we can still have peace. We can still know joy. And we can still have loving hearts. And I know this for sure because I get to see it every day in the faces of the people I serve at Wesley Glen. And so my challenge to you is this. Seek out the faith of Paul and the faces of the people in your life. And it is in my experience, you don't have to look very far because you'll find that faith in truly the most unbelievable places. Places you never thought to look before. In the faces of children, in the faces of grandparents, in the faces of custodians, in the faces of those we oftentimes overlook in our lives. Seek out the faith of Paul that you might embody it. And as Paul says, that you might imitate that faith so that when someone sees you, you might have a faith worthy of imitation. That you might be for them the Paul that changes their life as that person has changed yours. Seek out a faith worthy of imitation that it might be life-changing for you and for others in your world. Let us pray. Lord God, I come to you today grateful for the opportunity to be in this place where it is truly better and better. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for the opportunity to worship openly in this place where there are so many people all over the world who do not have the same privilege to worship openly as we do, who suffer persecution and who go through martyrdom even in the 21st century. Lord God, we know we live in a time where there is anxiety all in our lives and in the lives of those around us. The hurried pace in which we live, the technology that bombards our world can give us all sorts of anxiety the fears of an uncertain future, the worries about wayward children and health issues, God, can weigh upon our lives. And yet, God, we know that even in the midst of all of that, we can find joy and maintain peace because people like Paul tell us that we can. And we see it in the faces of people like Stuart and Johnny and Liddy. And in the faces of those in our lives, Help us, O oh God, to imitate that faith, that our faith might be worthy of imitation. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, today, tomorrow, and always. Amen.